Well, last week we started a new sermon series looking at the Gospel of Mark, um, which is one of the four books we have in the New Testament that tells the life and um, ministry of Jesus. And, and one of the things we didn't mention last week as we were introducing it is um, scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark is actually um, essentially the, uh, the Apostle Peter's Gospel, that uh, Mark was a disciple and friend of the Apostle Peter. And so what he wrote down was essentially um, Peter's version of the life and ministry of Jesus as he experienced it. And uh, part of what that means is um, this gospel sort of takes on Peter's personality. If you uh, know much about Peter, it, it can be very direct, very action-oriented, even emotional at times, and you'll see that throughout. One of the ways we can see that even today is that um, in this passage we're looking at, there are these two huge events in the life of Jesus, his baptism and uh, his temptation. But Peter, or Mark, coming from Peter, covers these in just five verses. Whereas if you look at these in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, they're, they're like a whole chapter. Like he, they spend a lot more time on them. Um, but part of what that's, I mentioned that because um, that's helpful, I think, to look at these two things because when there's so much time spent on each one of them in the other Gospels, sometimes you miss the connection and how they go together. Uh, but today, we're going to look at these two events together and how they're connected. And so let's look at this. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Uh, this passage is printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. And so let me read it for us and pray before we jump in. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being opened, being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you do call us, as we just sung about, to um, come and, and bring our weakness, bring our need to you. And that's what we want to do this morning. That's often uncomfortable for us, but um, that's our desire, that we'd be able to come and, and be present now. Um, be our weak and vulnerable selves and would be open to what you have to say to us. I know that's what I want um, for my own heart, even leading this time. And so would you give us your spirit, give us the ability to do that? Would you um, open our hearts to what you want to say to us? Um, Lord, use this to change us. Use it to speak to us. I pray Jesus in your name. Amen. So I'm not a, a, a big royals person in terms of like following the royal family. That may or may not be a surprise to you. I mean, I did watch a few episodes of The Crown a few years ago and uh, listened to Sarah process the Meghan and Harry documentary on a few walks not too long ago. But that's, that's about it. It's not something I follow or pay attention to that closely. But even so, it was hard to miss the inauguration of King Charles, King Charles III, that took place Back in May, it was a, a once-in-a-generation type of event, an event that hadn't happened in 70 years 
since Charles' mom, Queen Elizabeth, came to the throne in 1952 and reigned all the way to her death last September in 2022. And of course, we don't have kings and queens like we used to. And so it was this huge deal. It took place in the historic Westminster Abbey. It's full of pomp and pageantry. Any, everyone who's anyone in British public life, along with political leaders from all over the world, were there, not to mention celebrities, and, and many others were there to take in the event. And though everyone, including, I'm sure, many of us, were watching and listening closely to the ceremony, the reality is if you and I lived in the past and lived in a place where when the king truly did rule the nation or empire, we would have all been watching and listening much more closely. And why? Because coming under a new king or queen, we'd want to know, what is this going to be like? What can I learn from this ceremony about what to expect? What can I pick up from this about what life is going to be like for me under the rule of this new monarch? Now, I bring that up this morning because as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, that's actually what we get to do today as we look at this passage. Because here, Mark is showing us Jesus's inauguration, his inauguration ceremony as the king, the long-promised king. In the Jewish tradition, the expectation was that when this Messiah king came, three things would happen. Number one, the heavens would be opened. Number two, the Spirit of God would come down. And then third, the voice of God would, would speak over this person. All three things we see happening here as Jesus is baptized. And so we saw last week, Mark told us this king was coming. And that's what John's doing, baptizing and, and trying to get people ready for his coming. And now he shows up and he's inaugurated into this position. And as we look at it together, we need to pay close attention because even in these few verses, through these two inaugural events, we can learn a lot about what we should expect as we live under his rule. And that's important, right? If you're going to follow this king, you need to know what it's going to be like. You need to know what you can expect. And so that's what we're going to focus on today in our time. As we look here at Jesus' inauguration, we're going to ask, what can we learn from it about what life is going to be like for us as we follow him? And knowing that, knowing what it's going to be like, how can we live that life well? And so that's what we're going to think about. So let's, let's begin to answer those questions first by seeing where it starts. And where does it start? Well, we see that it, it starts with blessing. It starts with blessing. That's where it begins for Jesus, with this baptism, now, there, there are a few surprising things going on with this baptism scene. And one of them, right off the bat, is Jesus' credentials. So Mark tells us in verse 9 that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, that doesn't sound surprising to us, but to any first century person, it would, because Nazareth was nowhere. People would have expected the king to come from the south, not from the north, and certainly not from this tiny kind of middle-of-nowhere town like Nazareth. So this was super surprising that God and his upside down plan would do this. But then the other surprising thing, maybe more obvious to, obvious to us, is that Jesus is, is baptized at all. If you remember last week, John was calling these people to repent and be baptized. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. 
And he said, there's one who's, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one who's coming who's much mightier than I am and who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so because of these things, you wouldn't think Jesus would be baptized like all the other people coming to John are, but he is. And we'll come back to this later in the sermon. But even with all that going on, actually the most surprising thing and what dominates the scene is what happens once Jesus is baptized and comes out of the water. And what happens, he receives a blessing from his father. Look at verse 10. Mark tells us, when he, when Jesus came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And in the original language, there are three parts to this blessing. First, he says, you are my son. Then he says, you are the beloved. And then finally, with you I am well pleased. And this is where it begins for Jesus as he gets ready to start his ministry. It's the foundation. It's the starting point for all that he's going to be and for all that he's going to do. But before he does anything at all, it starts with blessing. With a reminder from his father of who he is. You are the beloved son. And it's so important for you and I to pay attention to the order here. Because if you and me operate out of the default way we think the world works, we would reverse this order, wouldn't we? We would think, first, Jesus has to do. First, he's, he's got to accomplish something. First, he's got to make something happen. First, he's got to defeat Satan and, and his temptations. And then, after he's done that, he's ready for a blessing. Once he's done that, then God can tell him that he's his beloved son. We think like this. I know I so often continue to think about life the way I used to think about um, coming out of a locker room after a basketball game. So I'd play the game and after it was over, I'd go get changed and then I'd come back out to the court to see my friends and family who'd come to watch me play. And if I played well, I felt like I deserved their love. I felt like I deserved their kind words. I felt like I deserved their presence there. I felt like I deserved their hugs, whatever it was. But if I didn't play well, I felt like a loser. I felt like I didn't deserve any of that. I didn't even deserve for them to come and see me. I felt like I had wasted their time. But by God's grace, I've grown and I've healed and worked through a lot of that. But you know, these things, these things die hard. And so it continues to be the natural way I think about this order. And left to myself, it can still be a, a, the way I often think about like after I lead a meeting or preach a sermon or when I evaluate how I'm doing as a husband or as a dad, like if I'm doing well, if I'm coming through when it counts, then I deserve love. Then I deserve blessing. But if I don't, then I don't because I have to earn it. And we all have different stories and maybe you have some kind of image like that that, that makes you think about this order this way. Pastor and theologian and author Brian Chapel he explains that, that what's happening with us when we do this he says what we're doing is we, we confuse our who and our do. He said this in an interview. He said, to answer the question, does God love me? The reflex response of many is to ask themselves another question. Well, let's see, how am I doing? Whether the person is in a loving relationship with God is determined by how a person is doing in terms of meeting God's standards or our own standards for ourselves. Such a person confuses our who for our do. 
What I do determines who I am. That's what we often think, and that's how we often live. But we see here, right at its onset, that's not how the kingdom works, this kingdom. That's not the order of operations. Because right here with Jesus, it doesn't start with doing. It doesn't start with performing. Even though, by the way, unlike you and me, if Jesus was graded on his performance, he would always be perfectly deserving of love and blessing. But even with him, that's not where it starts. It starts with blessing. It starts starts with a declaration of love. His father's voice saying over him, you are my son, I love you. And with you, I'm well pleased. And while, of course, Jesus is, is unique in his role as the beloved son, the amazing news of this kingdom is when you trust him and come into the kingdom, you can have this same declaration spoken over you. You can know God says over you before you do or accomplish anything. You are my son. You are my daughter. You're my beloved. And with you, I'm well pleased. And and this is the foundation for all of your life. It's where everything starts. Everything that you then go do flows from here. And and this is why when a, a secular journalist and writer named Fred Bratman asked the the great spiritual writer, Henry Nouwen, to write a book for him and his friends about what Christianity was all about. Really what the spiritual life was like as a Christian. When he asked him this, this is why Henry Nouwen wrote a book that he called Life of the Beloved. Based on this declaration, this blessing, God the Father speaks over Jesus here in his baptism and essentially saying that's what it's about. And here's what he says in the introduction to this book, to his friend, he says, we are the beloved. We are intimately loved before our parents, teachers, spouses, children, and friends loved or wounded us. That's the truth of our lives. Following Jesus and living in his kingdom, we see means first embracing this blessing as the truth of your life, that you are the beloved. But then second, we see there's something else. It starts here, but that's not all there is. We see living in the kingdom is not only filled with, with blessing, but it's, it's also filled with battle. And that's where, again, these two scenes together are so helpful and so important. Because just like it's so important for us to see the order here, that it's blessing first, then battle. It's who you are first, then what you do, and not the reverse. It's so important to see that the battle does come. It doesn't stop at blessing Look at what happens with Jesus. Think about this. One moment he's taking in this blessing from his father. He's enveloped in the love of the Trinity. He has an unforgettable experience of God's love. But then the next moment, the very same spirit who comes down and rests upon him, drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Look at at this. Verse 11, And a voice came down from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Then the, then the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So yes, the, the blessing doesn't come from us winning the battle. But God's blessing doesn't mean we won't be in a battle. And what we learn here by looking at Jesus is, is just as much as blessing is a part of living in God's kingdom, so is battle. So is suffering. So are trials, temptation, struggle, hardship. And as much as we should expect God's love to rest on us, we should expect it to be hard. We should expect hard times too. 
I know this is so helpful for me. I'm not saying I like it, especially compared to the first point. But it's helpful because it, it helps me make more sense of life and how it really goes. And it helps me see that there can be, and I should even expect both of these things to be a part of my life as I follow Jesus. I should expect God's love to rest on me and to give me this deep security and joy, but I should also expect for hard times to come. And when they do come, it helps me see it doesn't mean God doesn't love me anymore or that he's still not saying these same things over me, that his blessing's still not over my life anymore. And this has always been one of my, my favorite things about the Bible, just how honest it is about how life really is. It doesn't sugarcoat it or try to sell you some life that doesn't exist. It reminds me of this explorer I read about named Ernest Shackleton. And uh, he was an early 20th century adventurer who wanted to explore the Antarctic. And uh, this was obviously not going to be a safe thing to do. Um, but as he was recruiting a team to join him on this journey, instead of making it look and sound nice and, and kind of try to sell them this experience that was going to be sort of like a Viking river cruise, you know, for a while. Instead of doing that, he was honest. He was so honest. Listen, listen to this ad he, re- he ran in the London Times trying to recruit people to this team. Listen to what he said. Quote, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Right? He, wasn't, he wasn't trying to do some kind of bait and switch. He wasn't trying to sell anything. He was honest. He's like, here's what it's truly going to be like if you, if you follow me and come on this adventure I'm going on. You know, Jesus is honest too. The Bible's honest. God's not trying to sell us on something. You're going to have the love of God. His favor is going to rest on you, but it's, it's going to be hard. You're going to be in the wilderness. A lot. Tim Keller explains this by saying, the blessing and experience of God's love for you as the beloved is ultimate reality. It's the truest thing there is. But the battle is, is most of the time our experienced reality. So it's where we actually live. So what exactly is the battle? Well, there are all different kinds. Of course, there are all different kinds of sufferings, trials, and temptations we can face. But in all our battle, there's really one big battle going on, one big temptation Satan wants to attack us with. And again, Mark doesn't give us all the specific temptations like Matthew and Luke do, but you might remember these if you're familiar. So the first one, he, Jesus is hungry. He's been there a long time. So Satan tempts him to turn stones into bread so he can have something to eat. Then the second one, he tempts Jesus, he tells him, hey, jump off the top of the temple and let the angels save you since you're the son of God. And, and you'll, it'll be super impressive. Like it'll be this miraculous thing. Everybody will see it and they'll praise you. And then the last thing he does is he tells Jesus, hey, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you everything. I'll give you this whole world. And, and you can go into each and every one of those and pull out a lot of really helpful things But when you just take them all together, you can see there's one deeper thing Satan's going after. And what is it? Well, it's what God just said to Jesus in his blessing. Are you really the son of God? Are you really his beloved? 
are you sure he's really well pleased with you? Because if you are, and if he was, why are you out here all alone suffering like this? It's the battle of all the battles. I mean, you go back to the garden. That's what Adam and Eve faced, isn't it? It's how Satan went after them too. You know, if God really loved you, he would have given you this tree too. I mean, you know that, right? And it's how he goes after us. That's truly the most difficult part about suffering as a Christian. Whatever kind of suffering it is, whatever kind of trials or or temptations, and and for whatever reason it's happening, as far as you know, the, the suffering itself, making it through that, is hard. But the hardest part is going through the suffering while continuing to believe the blessing. Going through it while continuing to believe that you are God's beloved son or daughter, that he really is well pleased with you. The battle is about what story are you going to live in? What story are you going to believe is true? And more often than not, if if you and I are honest, we end up believing we're in the story Satan wants us to believe we're in. That because of where we are, because of what our circumstances look like, God must not really love us. We must not be his beloved children after all. And, and so where I want to leave in this morning is to think about this. If this is what life in the kingdom is like, this ongoing tension between blessing and battle, if that's what we should expect now, how can we live there? How can you, you and me learn to face the battle while staying rooted in the blessing? And here's where we need to come back to the placeholder question I asked earlier, this question of why is Jesus being baptized in the first place? And we didn't ask this one, but also why is he going through this temptation? Like, what is this about? What's the point? Well, on one hand, like we've talked about, Jesus is doing this as an example. He's doing this as the the exemplar human being and as the king, and he's showing us what life in this kingdom is like. He's showing us what we can expect. But as important as that is, he's doing this for a a much more important reason. Not only to be an example for us, but to be our substitute. And so I I want you to imagine the scene here on the banks of the Jordan River. So imagine days and days of people flocking to John to be baptized with this baptism that represents the forgiveness of sins. Imagine person after person coming with all kinds of sins, coming down into the water, having the water in a representative way cleanse them of all of their sins while they come out clean. And now imagine Jesus, the Holy One from God, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God himself come to earth. He has no sins of any kind. As God in his divine nature, he's so holy, sin can't even be in his presence without some kind of mediation. And yet this Jesus comes down into this same water. He lets John put it on him. But not to wash off any sins he has, but to put on the sins of everybody else. And then he goes from there into this temptation in the wilderness with Satan, the great enemy. This temptation, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, failed so many years ago. This temptation, the nation of people in the nation of Israel have, have been failing for so many years since. And this temptation that you and I have failed and continue to fail up to this day. 
Jesus went into that temptation and he came out unscathed. See, everything he's doing here, he's doing for us. And both of these events point us forward to the greatest thing Jesus came to do for us. See, his baptism from John points to the true baptism. The baptism in blood he was going to face on the cross where he didn't take on our sins in a representative way, but where they came on him with the full force of God's wrath. And his temptation, it points to the ultimate time Satan was going to tempt him and question God's love for him. When he was on the cross and he was mocked through people who were standing by saying to him, if you really are the son of God, save yourself. Come down from here. If God really loves you like this, what are you doing? Why hasn't he rescued you? But like this first temptation, Jesus didn't give in to this one either. He kept resting in what he knew to be true. He kept living in the story that, that he knew was true, even if it didn't feel like it in the moment. And because he did that for us, the good news is when we trust him, we can know it's true for us too. Right? When you trust him, you can know that the story you're living in, no matter what life looks like at the moment, is the story of blessing. It's the story of your father's affection poured out over you, his voice singing over you. You can have the same spirit come down and rest on you. You, you can be enveloped in the love of the Trinity. And we can know it's a blessing and a love we can never lose because Jesus Christ, the one true king, is the one who's earned it for us. Driven by the Father's love, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's done everything necessary to secure it for us forever. And so how do you stay rooted in the blessing while you face the battle? How do you, in Nowen's words, own your belovedness as the truth of your life? We don't look at your life. You look at his life. You don't look at your circumstances or your performance or how you feel like you've been doing lately. You look at Jesus and his performance for you. You look at Jesus and, and what he did for you in his life, death, and resurrection 2,000 years ago. That's how you live in this kingdom. That's how you experience the life of God's blessing while living in the middle of a battle. Jesus, he, he wants to prepare us. He wants us to know what to expect and he, he wants to equip us for the journey. He wants us to give us the way through and it's him. And to whatever kind of wilderness the spirit leads you, whatever kind of wilderness he has you in today, the way through is to look at him and to hear these words of blessing over you. You are my daughter. You are my son. You're my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. You've got to sit with that. You've got to meditate on that. You've got to rest in that until you own it, until it does become the truth of your life. And listen, that's not easy. That, that, takes, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for that to sink in and, and actually feel true. It takes a lot of time with Jesus. A lot of time alone with God and his word. A lot of time in silence and solitude and prayer. A lot of time with other people who can remind you that that's actually the truest thing about you. It takes a lot of time in worship. But even in Jesus' inauguration, we learn this is what the kingdom's all about. It's the simple and inviting yet slow and painstaking process of learning to embrace this identity and live out of it, and, and be who we are. Make no mistake, it is a hazardous journey, one that is often full of danger and darkness, 
and doubt, but it's the way to life. And it's the only way to the abundant life that you and me were made for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you um, for who you are. Thank you that you are uh, this kind of king. Thank you that you tell us what to expect um, as we follow you. But more than that, thank you that you uh, are our champion, that you've gone before us, um, not only in receiving this blessing from your father, but um, defeating Satan and this great temptation um, that we face every day to really believe that it's true. Thank you that we can look at you and know that it is. Uh, so I pray that you give us your spirit and help us all to, to do that a little bit more today um, and that we would be able to live out of this um, life-changing truth that we are your beloved children. I pray in your name, amen.